Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir John A. Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you want to support the podcast, you can for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There's many different tiers and you get benefits including early episodes, swag, and much more. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. In terms of Canadian Prime Ministers of the 20th century, one that is often forgotten, but had a huge role and impact on our country during a time of massive change, was Sir Robert Borden. It was under his watch as Prime Minister that Canada would move from being a mere dominion within the British Empire to a full-fledged country in its own right. For Borden, it begins when he was born on June 26, 1854 in Grand Prix, Nova Scotia. Borden's family dates back to Richard Borden, who came to Portsmouth, Rhode Island in 1638. In 1755, Samuel Borden was commissioned by the Nova Scotia government to survey the vacant lands and lay out plots on land left by the Acadians. Samuel was given a parcel of land, but he returned to New Bedford in 1764, so his son Perry took the land, beginning the line of Bordens living in Canada. Borden was an excellent student and would attend the private school, Acacia Villa School. Borden excelled in Greek and Latin and was learning Hebrew very quickly. He was able to cut short his formal education when he was 15 after he was accepted to the post of assistant master of the private school he was attending, taking over the classical studies. After four years at the school, he was accepted to the Glenwood Institute in Matawan, New Jersey. By 1874, his schooling life was drawing to a close, and Borden needed to find a career. Since he did not have a university education, his options for teaching were limited, and Borden decided that it was time for a career change. He would shift his focus to a law career, and at the age of 20, he went to Nova Scotia again to article in law. At the same time, he enlisted with the 63rd Halifax Volunteer Battalion of Rifles, earning $6 for 12 days of surface and a $50 bonus when he qualified for a commission. In 1877, Borden, along with Charles Tupper and 23 others, sat down to the provincial bar examinations. Borden finished at the top of his class and spent a year as an apprentice at a law firm before he was admitted to the bar. After briefly having a law practice with a classmate, he went to Kentville to serve as a junior partner with John Pryor Chipman. In 1882, he came back to Halifax to work at the law firm that included partners John Sparrow, David Thompson, and Charles Tupper, two future Prime Ministers. In this law firm, Borden would help prepare the government's cases in the seizure of two American fishing vessels in 1886. In 1888, Thompson, who is now the Minister of Justice in Ottawa, invited Borden to work with him as a deputy minister, but Borden declined, choosing to remain in Halifax. And a big reason for that might have been his relationship with a lady. In 1886, he began that relationship with Laura Bond, who was the daughter of a successful hardware merchant in Halifax. In 1889, he would marry Laura, when he was 35 and she was 28. The couple would not have any children, and Laura is described as an attractive, lively, and strong-willed woman who had a love of theatre and literature. Around the same time, Borden founded a law firm that would become one of the largest law firms in the Maritime Provinces. 
This would allow him to live a relatively comfortable life, and in 1891 and 1893, he and Laura were able to tour England and Europe. The success of the law firm was shown in the clients he had, which included Canada Atlantic Steamship, the Bank of Nova Scotia, and Nova Scotia Telephone. His life likely would have continued in the path of being a lawyer, if not for Sir Charles Tupper. At the time, Tupper was Prime Minister of Canada, briefly, and in the 1896 election, he would convince his friend, Borden, to run for Parliament while the two were having dinner in Ottawa. This was not something Borden had thought of doing as he was a reserved man who did not like public speaking. What convinced him was his belief that successful men should take on political office for the public good, and he was successful, so he ran. Earlier in his life, Borden had been a liberal, but over time, his views would shift to be more conservative. In the 1896 election, Borden was elected and served as a backbencher, while still practicing law in Halifax. He would write Laura, stating, quote, It is a miserable, irregular life one has to lead, and I am more than sick of it, I can assure you. Loyal to Tupper, he began to move to a more prominent role in the party, and was becoming an emergent figure within it. On November 7, 1900, the Conservatives were again defeated in another election, and Tupper gave up his leadership role. It was decided that the party needed a fresh face to lead them, and many turned to Borden, who had no enemies in the party and was seen as a hard worker. Upon hearing he was in the running for leader, Borden would write, quote, I have not either the experience or the qualifications which would enable me to successfully lead the party. It would be an absurdity for the party and madness for me. On February 6, 1901, Borden was chosen as the new leader, and he agreed to serve for one year and wanted the party to have a committee in place to find a new leader by that point. Tupper would serve for the next 19 years as a leader. At the time, the party was in the shadow of the Liberals and Sir Wilfrid Laurier, so Borden began to work to rebuild the Conservative Party over the next decade. He would also start to craft the new platform for the party, culminating in the Halifax Platform of 1907 that called for government regulations of railways, telegraphs and telephones, and reforms to the Civil Service and the Canadian Senate. He also pushed back against the British making decisions for Canada on an international stage. In 1907, during a debate to amend the Canadian Shipping Act, he would say, quote, It should be the duty of the Imperial Parliament to consult the Government of Canada with respect to any amendments which concern this country. We should be consulted before any acts of the Imperial Parliament are passed which conflict with the opinions of the people of this country in their parliamentary enactments. As leader, many found Borden to be reserved, serious, and distant. He also sought advice from outside the party, which often angered some of the MPs in the party. Many were unhappy in the direction that Borden was moving the party during his time in opposition. Samuel Hughes, who was close with Borden, would write about him, quote, A most lovely fellow, very capable, but not a very good judge of men or tactics, and as gentle-hearted as a girl. Borden also had a difficult time dealing with his French-Canadian MPs, and he believed that their ideas were dated, so he never went out of his way to understand his MPs from Quebec. Borden was also highly influenced by the ideas of democratizing political parties and using state power in the public interest. When Laurier's government proposed two new transcontinental railways in 1903 to push settlement to the Canadian West, Borden agreed, 
that the transportation routes to the west were needed, but he felt it was a waste to have two railroads running so near to each other within a carriage ride, in his words. Borden also wanted a railroad not owned by private corporations, but by the people of Canada. Unfortunately for Borden, the Liberals were in power and took a big majority in the November 1904 election. In that election, they took every seat in Nova Scotia, including Borden's. Borden actually thought about resigning, but in December of 1904, he decided to remain as party leader, stating, quote, I have put all the hesitation and doubt behind me, and I shall endeavour to do my full duty. A vacancy in the district and a riding in Ontario was found, and Laurier arranged to have Borden acclaimed there on February 4, 1905, with no Liberal candidate running against him. Shortly after the election, he bought a house in Ottawa, and Laura moved from Halifax, with Borden committing himself to national politics rather than law. In 1908, Borden would again see the Conservatives lose to Sir Wilfrid Laurier, but the Conservatives did gain 14 seats from the previous election, and this pushed Borden's resolve to lead the party. Within the Conservative Party, many were still unhappy that the party had seen four election defeats in a row, including two while Borden was in charge. All of Borden's work would pay off after an agreement was reached with the United States, negotiated by Prime Minister Laurier, forcing a general election. Borden, working with anti-Laurier groups including liberal businessmen opposed to the agreement and French-Canadians opposed to the Naval Service Act, was able to defeat the Liberal Party and end 15 years of Laurier and the Liberals leading the country. Borden, only 15 years after he had first entered politics, was now the Prime Minister of Canada. The Conservatives were able to take all seven seats in British Columbia, eight of ten seats in Manitoba, 73 of 86 seats in Ontario, and 27 seats in Quebec. In all, Borden had 137 seats to Laurier's 87, a resounding victory after 11 years in charge. One of the first tasks for Borden as the new Prime Minister was to give Canada a voice in imperial policy. He would create a naval policy that would involve a grant of $35 million to Britain for the construction of three battleships. The debate over the bill would go through the House of Commons for weeks, and Borden would write after one all-night session, quote, Our men angry at end, and both sides wanted a physical conflict. Primeval passions. On April 9, 1914, the bill passed, but the Liberal-controlled Senate killed it in May of that year. The back and forth over Canadian Navy would continue for several months. During this time and continuing until 1920, Borden would also serve as the Secretary of State for External Affairs. Borden also began to reform the civil service, beginning with the establishment of the Civil Service Commission in 1908. He also created the Canada Grain Act of 1912 to establish a board of grain commissioners to supervise grain inspection and regulate the grain trade. It also allowed for the government to build and operate terminal elevators at key points in the export system. Within four years, government terminals were operating across the Canadian West. On June 22, 1914, Robert Borden was knighted. He took some time in July to vacation in Muskoka, but on July 31st he was on a train rushing to Toronto, and the next day he was in Ottawa. On August 4, 1914 at 8.55pm, a cable from London arrived during an emergency cabinet meeting stating that Canada was now at war. 
On August 8, 1914, two weeks after the start of the First World War, Borden would write in his diary, quote, On Sunday afternoon, I discussed with Lord Bryce the future constitutional relations within the Empire, and he agreed that the Dominions must have a voice in foreign policy. I told him that they would either have such a voice, or each of them would have a foreign policy of its own. In his speech to the House of Commons on August 14, 1914, regarding his intentions with the First World War, he would say, quote, In the awful dawn of the greatest war the world has ever seen, in the hour when peril confronts us such as this empire has not faced for a hundred years, every vain or unnecessary word seems a discord. As to our duty, all are agreed. We stand shoulder to shoulder with Britain and other British dominions in this quarrel and that duty we shall not fail to fulfill as the honour of Canada demands, not for the love of battle, not for the lust of conquest, not for the greed of possessions, but for the cause of honour. While the war was greeted with enthusiasm by most in the House of Commons, the government in Canada was not prepared for war. Only one person in the House of Commons had any military experience, and that was Sam Hughes. And while the Ross rifle was manufactured in Canada, there was no capacity to make heavy armaments. In 1914, he would implement the War Measures Act, creating the first direct taxation by the Ottawa government, including a temporary income tax that is still here today. He also nationalized the railways to create the Canadian National Railways. And while Britain demanded troops, and he did send half a million by war's end, Borden also worked behind the scenes to give Canada the ability to make its own decisions when it came to international issues. Of course, it wasn't all good. Through the use of the War Measures Act, 8,000 Canadians would be put in prison camps or used as forced laborers in government work projects. This would continue until 1920, two years after the war ended. In addition, support of the war tended to mostly come from English Canada, the army also had few French-Canadian officers, and patronage within the army was rampant and prejudice against Germans and other ethnic groups swept the country. This was shown not only in the internments, but in the changing of the name of Berlin, Ontario to Kitchener, Ontario in 1916. It should be noted, though, that through the cooperation with the Liberal Party, the Canadian government was able to implement most of its war legislation in only five days. In 1916, Borden announced that Canada's military forces would be increased to 500,000 men, but he made this announcement without telling the Governor-General, and a note was sent to him stating that the Governor-General was happy about the decision, but he was surprised that he was not consulted beforehand. Borden, who wanted more independence for Canada, responded by saying, quote, the Prime Minister learns with regret that His Royal Highness has felt some surprise because an order in cancel was not passed before announcing the policy alluded to. For nearly a century, it has not been the practice in this country to formulate policies through the medium of orders in council. That course must be taken as a matter of convenience, but it is by no means necessary or even unusual. By mid-1916, the number of recruits enlisting was beginning to dry up. Across the country, labour shortages were being reported on farms and on production lines, and the quick war that everyone expected was not a reality as both the Allies and Germans dug into their trenches. By July 1916, only 8,389 men enlisted. In April and May, only 11,000 enlisted. There was a growing need in Europe for food from Canada as well, 
and the government commandeered the 1915 wheat crop as a result. In 1917, prices for wheat were skyrocketing, and Borden would establish the Board of Grain Supervisors of Canada, which would take on the marketing of crops in 1917 and 1918, and this organization would eventually be succeeded by the Canadian Wheat Board. One of the biggest challenges for Borden would come as the First World War raged on, and that volunteer recruitment was falling to the point where there were just not enough men enlisting to make up for the staggering losses at the front. In the spring of 1917, Borden decided that the country needed conscription, and he would bring in the Military Service Act. The issue of conscription was a dicey one, to say the least. English Canada was very much in favour of it, while French Canada was extremely against it. French Canada was already unhappy with the Borden government over the abolishment of the use of French as a language of institutions beyond Form 1. In 1916, 5,000 French Canadians marched in protest to Borden's office over the issue. And while Borden said he would see what he could do, in reality, he did nothing. Borden resisted the issue of conscription for as long as he could, but the issue threatened to divide the country and Borden attempted to create a political alliance with Sir Wilfrid Laurier to show a united front in Parliament. Laurier, knowing most of Quebec was against conscription, refused. Borden still formed a union government, consisting of Conservatives and Liberals who were in favour of conscription. The Act was passed and Borden was able to win the 1917 election. The election was one of the most contentious in Canadian history. After Laurier refused to join the coalition government, the Winnipeg Free Press ran the headline, A vote for Laurier is a vote for the Kaiser. The Toronto Daily News published a front-page map of Canada showing English-speaking Canada in red and Quebec in black. In Quebec, Albert Savigny, the Minister of Inland Revenue, was driven from a platform when he was speaking due to flying stones and gunshots. He took refuge in a hotel, which had its windows smashed, and he was forced to flee out the back. Many were unhappy with Borden for what they saw as an attempt to fix the vote for his union government. Prior to the election, Borden had passed the Military Voters Act, which made it possible to manipulate the counting of votes from the front, and the Wartime Elections Act, which took the vote from anyone deemed to be an enemy alien who had come to Canada after 1902. In the end, the Unionists won the day with 114 seats, while Laurier and his Liberals had 82, 62 of them coming from Quebec and only two from Western Canada. Within this new Union government, which was the only time in Canadian history that Canada was not governed by a Liberal or Conservative party, Borden appointed future Prime Minister Arthur Meehan to manage the House of Commons, along with two Liberals named Newton Rowell and Alexander Maclean, who were given key cabinet positions. With the new Military Service Act, the first men called had been required to register for service in October. Roughly 100,000 single men aged 20 to 22 would be conscripted over the next year. After 1917, due to the influx of Canadians heading to the front now, the Canadian Expeditionary Force was able to form into one division in the Canadian Corps, under the command of Canadian General Sir Arthur William Curry. With the Canadian successes at places like Vimy Ridge and Passchendaele, Borden felt that Canada had become its own nation. Seeing Canada fight in the First World War pushed the belief in Borden that Canada needed to have a greater independence from Britain and the other member countries in the British Empire. The new British Prime Minister David Lloyd George felt the same way, stating, quote, They are fighting not for us, but with us. 
The Imperial War Conference was held in 1917 with Canada attending as a senior dominion, and Borden would author Resolution 9 of the Imperial War Conference, arguing that Canada and the other dominions in the Empire deserved to be recognized as autonomous nations of an imperial commonwealth, and that the country should have a voice in foreign policy and foreign relations. Another insistence from Borden was that Canada and the other countries in the Dominion send delegates to the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, and that they would sign the Versailles Treaty as well. Borden saw the war as giving Canada its international status, but he still felt that Canada was at the Paris Peace Conference more as a matter of form than substance. He would write Laura, saying, quote, Canada got nothing out of the war except recognition. In 1918, Canada was hit by the Spanish flu, which would kill 50,000 Canadians over the course of 1918 and 1919. As Prime Minister, Borden would help bring in the first Federal Department of Health in 1919, which would eventually contribute to the creation of universal health care in Canada. Thanks to the work of Borden creating a greater autonomy for Canada, Canada was a separate entity with its own representation outside of Britain in the International Labour Organization and the League of Nations. One of the biggest changes to come to Canada under Borden was women's suffrage. After Manitoba granted women the right to vote in 1916, followed by Saskatchewan and Alberta, the federal government gave the right to vote to women who had relatives fighting in the war in 1917. In 1918, full women's suffrage was implemented federally. Borden would also be the last Prime Minister to be knighted due to changes in the Canadian title system, put forward under the Nickel Resolution during his administration. This was due to his belief that patronage should end in government, and he demanded that appointments be made on merit alone. During the Nickel Resolution debate, Borden would say about knighthoods, quote, They are very unpopular and entirely incompatible with our institutions. Of course, it wasn't all good decisions during his time in office. One of the worst was during the Winnipeg General Strike, when he put forward a policy of arresting leaders of the strike and charging them under a revised definition of sedition that was rushed through Parliament in the form of an amendment to the Canadian Criminal Code. This move would cause a great deal of animosity towards him from Labour groups, and the Winnipeg strike was put down on June 21, 1919, on what is now known as Bloody Saturday due to the use of force by police. I did an episode on the Winnipeg General Strike and you can find it on my website at CanadaEHX.com. In 1920, Borden decided to retire from politics. Upon his retirement, he was the only Allied leader to have stayed in office throughout the entire First World War. He also hoped for a quiet retirement, but he soon found himself spending his remaining years working as an international statesman and advocate for the League of Nations. He would also serve as the Chancellor of Queen's University from 1924 to 1930. In 1932, he would become the Chairman of Canada's first mutual fund, the Canadian Investment Fund. And he would write his friend, Lloyd George, about his time, saying, quote, There is nothing that oppresses me. Books, some business avocation, my wild garden, the birds, the flowers, a little golf and a great deal of life in the open. These together make up the fullness of my days. When he could, he would spend time in his wildflower garden on the bank of the Rideau, and he and Laura would often play golf, host dinner parties, and play bridge with friends. In 1928, Borden would begin writing his memoirs, which he would mostly finish prior to his death.
As for Laura, she would serve as the president of the Aberdeen Society and the local Council of Women. She was also a counsellor in the Victorian Order of Nurses and the vice president of the National Council of Women. Borden passed away in Ottawa on June 10, 1937, and his two-volume memoir would be published by his nephew Henry shortly after his death. Upon his death, 1,000 veterans of the First World War lined the procession route from Glensmere to All Saints Church for his funeral, and he would be buried in Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa. Several schools have been named for him in Ottawa, Toronto, and Nova Scotia, as is Borden, Western Australia. Borden Island in the Canadian Arctic is named for him, and a town in Prince Edward Island. In 1957, a statue of Borden was unveiled at Parliament Hill in honour of the 20th anniversary of his death. Yesterday in Ottawa, Canada paid tribute to the memory of a great Canadian, Sir Robert Borden. To take its place among other memorials to men that have contributed to their country's historic role, a statue of heroic proportions was unveiled on Parliament Hill. Mac Lipson of CKOY Ottawa was present at the dedication ceremonies and reports now to assignment. Yesterday, I stood on a windswept, snow-covered height on Parliament Hill and watched the dedication of a memorial to one of Canada's outstanding Prime Ministers, a man who, if he had followed the dictates of his own heart and conscience, might have died in comparative obscurity. This was the day in Ottawa, as a new session of Parliament opened, that the statue of Sir Robert Borden was unveiled, an impressive figure of the statesman, sculpted in bronze, standing nine feet three inches high on a base of Canadian granite. The statue stands on a rise of land just west of the west block of the Parliament buildings. It was unveiled by Sir Robert uh, Borden's nephew, Henry Borden, QC of Toronto. The Prime Minister was there, as was opposition leader John Diefenbaker, and, of course, the creator of this piece of sculpture, Miss Frances Loring, a bright, vivacious artist of international fame and now in her 70th year. It was chilly in Ottawa at the unveiling, and only a small crowd had gathered for the ceremony. The events of Sir Robert's stewardship as head of the government in some of its stormiest years had been apparently ignored by the present generation. Those of the public who were on hand were mainly older citizens, and there was many a memory returned as the cover fell from the bronze statue to reveal the leonine head and handsome figure of the Nova Scotia lawyer who headed the Conservative Party for so many years. After the unveiling, tribute was paid to Sir Robert. Prime Minister Saint-Laurent, in a brief ceremony in Parliament's Hall of Honour, said... Sir Robert Borden's leadership, Canada made a contribution to the First War which won the praise and admiration of her allies. In addition to his leadership at home, Sir Robert played an active role in the Imperial War Cabinet in London. He strove throughout the war to ensure that Canada should have a voice in the formulation of Allied policies rather than limit her role to supplying men and material. With a wide and statesmanlike view of his country's capacity and her future, he sought to encourage his fellow citizens to accept their new and inevitable responsibilities. His nephew, Henry Borden QC, with visible emotion, spoke for the Borden family. This is indeed an historic occasion. And I wish, Mr. Prime Minister, to thank you sincerely for doing me the great honor and giving me the unforgettable privilege of unveiling this statue of my uncle. 
And John Diefenbaker, the new conservative leader, and in one of his first official actions in Ottawa, and the latest bearer of the conservative standard, had this to say. Uh, Joint Chairman, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. First, I want to join with Mr. Borden in thanking the Prime Minister for the generous terms in which he referred to the service to Canada of Sir Robert Borden. And that is in keeping with the traditions of our public service. And while we may disagree in matters of policy, each of us must, under our democratic system, realize that it is only in a community of counsel that the best for Canada will be achieved. And I think it's most fitting that we on this occasion honor one of Canada's greatest statesmen. And so Sir Robert Borden stood enshrined on Parliament Hill on the opening day of the fourth session of Canada's 22nd Parliament. And now this timeless memorial to his integrity and service to his country stands on historic Parliament Hill along with the other great men who played their parts in writing the Canadian story. But had it not been for the persuasion of friends and party colleagues, Sir Robert might rest in his birthplace of Grand Pre, Nova Scotia, virtually forgotten. This statue, unveiled yesterday, is not only a tribute to an outstanding Canadian, it is also a memorial to the whims of fate. In a survey of historians looking at the first 20 prime ministers, Borden ranked seventh. Along with being knighted, Borden was also presented the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honour from France in 1915, the Grand Cordon of the Order of Leopold of Belgium in 1916, and 10 honorary degrees from universities across Canada. In 1928, he was made a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and in 1951, a stamp with his image on it was released by Canada Post. I will end this episode now with a quote about Borden from his friend Lloyd George, who said, quote, A sagacious and helpful counsellor who was always the quintessential of common sense. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Sir Robert Borden. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall... Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, Britannica, Queen's University, The Canada Guide, Wikipedia, The History Museum, The University of Manitoba, Encyclopedia.com, Maclean's, Nova Scotians at Home and Abroad, 
in the History of Nova Scotia, Volume 3. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.